Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. This is going to be an insanely long episode this week. I have 20 pages. No, I'm wrong. 21 pages uh, just of news stories. Uh, We're actually not going to be able to do a Law 140 this week because we're not going to have time. Um, But just know there's been a lot of stuff going on. We're going to cover it all. Before we get into it, though, uh, I've got a couple podcast notes that I need y'all to be aware of. Uh, They're both kind of good news, bad news things. So first, we've had to remove the embedded media player from the fiscamall.com website uh, because basically too many people were using it. So we have our media host, Blueberry. They're good. They scale. We can serve our podcast out to thousands of people every episode. But for the folks who are playing it through the website, we were using Blueberry's service to, to stream, but it was also using the processor for the website server itself. And basically, we had so many of y'all using it that it was crashing the website and folks weren't able to access it. Um, So until I can figure out a workaround, we've had to take that off. I will most likely have to put the website on what's called a VPS, a virtual private server, uh, to give it a little bit more processor time. But just know that's temporarily gone. Uh, It's not a glitch. It was something where we're trying to deal with the traffic. Uh, I'm grateful that we have so many people listening. I just haven't quite figured out how to deal with the technology side of it yet because I didn't expect to have this many listeners. Uh, Also, we had an attorney rely on some of our show notes for a case, and then that prompted me to look into some of our back stuff. And I realized that our episode numbering is actually off. We're somehow off by two episodes throughout like the middle part of our series, and we're off by three episodes for most of the past two months. So this is actually episode 41. It is not episode 38. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I've actually, I'm going back through our old Uh, show notes on WordPress, slowly cleaning it up a couple entries at a time. Uh, So what's going to happen is that if you've got links to the old episodes, I don't think I'm going to bother doing 403 redirects. uh, So the old links will be broken, but then it'll be correct for all eternity after this. So just kind of recopy what you need. But we've got a system in place now that is more robust so that hopefully we can compile and track stuff going on into the future. So those are the podcast notes. Wanted you to be aware of them. Uh, Just wanted to let you know we're trying to spruce up the place a little bit because when we started this, it was a very haphazard idea, a haphazard implementation. The only thing we really planned out ahead of time was that I had Mike here to clean up the audio and that was it. So we're trying to uh, spruce it up and make it like official podcasty down the line. Uh, So there's that. Also, I want to say thank you to everyone who participated in the fundraiser for the Durham Animal Protection Society this past Friday. Still working on the final numbers, but we were at $1,000 raised by lunch. So I'm I'm fairly certain we blew past that pretty easily. Um, So it was, I basically devoted my Twitter feed the entire day to talking about Samson. So thank all of you for participating on that one. Uh, so, all right, let's get into what's going on in the world. Uh, first, join the conversation online. If you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also leave comments on our website, Fiskamall.com, even though you can't listen to the show there anymore. Uh, but you can still leave your comments if you want to offer some thoughts. If you want to join our Patreon community, you can do that also. That is patreon.com slash fisk. I'm going to gloss over the politics this week because we do have a lot of criminal justice stories to talk about. Uh, 
I missed this earlier, but Michael Flynn, of course, pled guilty. That was from a couple weeks ago. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. actually spent a couple hours testifying to Congress about stuff. And then when they asked him about a specific conversation with his dad, he claimed that attorney-client privilege protected them, uh, even though that's not quite how attorney-client privilege works. Our Law 140 next week will be an overview of attorney-client privilege. Uh, but just know that Trump Jr.'s assertion at that congressional hearing is probably bullshit. There may be a scenario where it would apply. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Um, Chuck Grassley, representative talking about the tax bill, reminded people why he's an asshole. Uh, he says the tax reform currently being discussed would, quote, recognize the people that are investing as opposed to those that are just spending every darn penny they have, whether it's on booze or women or movies. Uh, the only booze I have in my apartment is vodka in my freezer that was given to me as a birthday gift like three years ago, and I just haven't drank it. Uh, the only money I spend on women is occasionally taking my girlfriend out to dinner and paying my female employees. And my movies, who goes to movies these days? I mean, most of us just watch Netflix. I don't know. So Chuck Grassley's an asshole. Uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, Roy Moore will most likely become our latest United States senator. And uh, from the great state of Alabama, love y'all down there. Can't believe this guy's going to get elected. But it's funny. He's an idiot. I mean, aside from being crazy and a pedophile, he's also an idiot. Uh, new audio came out where he is on a radio show, the Aroostook Watchman, run by some crackpot out of Maine. And they're talking about the United States Constitution. And the host says it would be great to have a constitutional amendment that nullifies all of the amendments after the 10th. And Roy Moore talks about how that's such a fabulous idea. He would love to see that happen. And, of course, the, the reason why they're talking about it is the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause. They talk about that at length. But what seems to be missing from that conversation is that Roy Moore is running for the United States Senate. And the only reason why we have elected senators is because of the 17th Amendment. The guy's a dumbass. Uh, also, out of our presidential administration, the beloved Papaya Potus, our Cheeto-in-Chief himself, Donald Trump, uh, on Monday, they announced that they were going to lead some new effort to end homelessness uh, of veterans. And then the next day, quietly disclosed that they were going to end a program that helps end homelessness among veterans. I mean, there's so much bullshit that happens in this administration every week. It really does blow your mind. I'll give you links to all that stuff in the show notes so you can read it yourself. Uh, so in court news, there's a case out of the Fourth Circuit, which encompasses North Carolina, the title is Sims versus Labowitz. It is a three-judge panel opinion by the Fourth Circuit. And it's really kind of creepy. Essentially, a police detective was investigating a sexting case where a 17-year-old was sending explicit text messages to his 15-year-old girlfriend. Why this is considered something that the government needs to worry about, I don't entirely know. High school kids do this shit all the time. But I'm just going to read you some, some quotes from the court opinion to highlight how utterly stupid and gross it was. Uh, the opinion says, quote, In 2014, David E. Abbott, a detective with the Manassas City Police Department in Virginia, investigated allegations that 17-year-old Trey Sims used his cellular telephone to send sexually explicit photographs and video recordings of himself to his 15-year-old girlfriend. During the course of the investigation, Abbott obtained a search warrant authorizing photographs of Sims' naked body, including his erect penis. 
When Abbott executed the warrant, he allegedly demanded that Sims manipulate his penis to achieve an erection, essentially insisting that he masturbate in front of him. Uh, Sims unsuccessfully attempted to comply with Abbott's order. Now, this is the first of two separate search warrants because this guy actually went and got another one. Uh, but in a, quote, locker room at the uh, juvenile detention center where this kid was taken, quote, Abbott and two uniformed armed officers executed the first search warrant. Abbott ordered Sims to pull down his pants so that photos could be taken of his penis. After Sims complied, Abbott instructed Sims to use his hands to manipulate his penis in different ways to obtain an erection. However, Sims was unable to achieve an erection. Nonetheless, Abbott took photographs of Sims' flaccid penis using Abbott's cellular telephone. The next day, Sims was arraigned on charges of possession and distribution of child pornography. Abbott informed Sims's attorney that Abbott again proposed to take photographs of Sims's erect penis to be used as evidence. Abbott also stated that if Sims could not achieve an erection, Sims would be taken to a hospital to give him an erection-producing injection. Abbott then obtained a second search warrant from a Virginia magistrate, which authorized additional photographs of Sims's naked body, including his erect penis. Now, the officer wussed out and killed himself because he knew that he had fucked up royally when this story hit the news waves. Uh, so he ended up taking his own life. But the estate says, hey, this is no big deal. Officers do this all the time. This kid was not placed in any physical danger, so it's not an intrusion on his privacy rights. The Fourth Circuit essentially said that's a really stupid argument to make. They say, quote, although the intrusion suffered by Sims was neither physically invasive nor put him at risk of direct physical harm, the search nonetheless was exceptionally intrusive. First, as alleged by Sims, Abbott sought to do more than visually inspect Sims's genitalia. He attempted to photograph Sims's penis in a sexually aroused state. Further, the manner that Abbott employed to execute the warrant, namely ordering Sims to masturbate to obtain an erection, required that Sims perform a sex act in the presence of three armed officers. Requiring Sims to masturbate in the presence of others, like searches involving physical penetration of genitalia, constituted the ultimate invasion of personal dignity. Construing the facts in the light most favorable to Sims, a reasonable police officer would have known that attempting to obtain a photograph of a minor child's erect penis by ordering the child to masturbate in the presence of others would unlawfully invade the child's right of privacy under the Fourth Amendment. We've got some really disturbed motherfuckers working on police departments around the country. And not just that, you got to think, not only did the officer want to take a picture of a teenage boy's erect penis... He convinced a district attorney to make the request for the search warrant, convinced a magistrate to sign off on it. So you've got at least three people that have serious fucking mental health issues or just are straight perverted pedophile type people that they thought this made sense. So now the police in the Fourth Circuit, which is South Carolina, North Carolina, West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland, uh, are now on notice that you cannot ask a teenage boy to masturbate in front of you so that you can get some pictures. Uh, in the general research news, 538 has a report on the National Crime Victim Survey. So the 2017 survey has been released that has results for 2016 uh, stuff. So essentially what you have when it comes to police data, you've got a couple different databases. The FBI maintains what is called the Uniform Crime uh, Information Statistics. So the UCI database that is the actual compilation of arrests. So as local departments report arrests, those all get compiled by the FBI. 
And that becomes the uh, UCRs, the Uniform Crime Report data that you see. So when people talk about crime, that's usually what they're referring to. Well, that information is always incomplete because it's optional for local police departments to participate. The FBI can't compel them to do so. And every now and then you have issues crop up where it's just not reported properly or not compiled properly. So the National Crime Victim Survey is a separate statistical process where they pick certain jurisdictions, they interview a sample of people, ask them if they've been a victim of various types of crimes, whether or not it's been reported and everything else, and they release that as well. So the idea is that neither data set on its own covers everything, but if you look at the two in tandem, you can get a lot of information. So the 2017 NCVS data is out that covers 2016 experiences with crime that you would then compare to 2015 to determine if there's been a crime increase or not. Uh, so essentially, the 538 report in going through this says that the rise in murders that we talked about in prior podcasts is actually real. I mean, that part's evident because when you've got someone killed, the police tend to take notice of that. It's pretty uniformly reported. But the Department of Justice made tweaks to how the uh, NCVS is compiled in terms of the jurisdictions they select, who they sample from. And because of that, there's a lot of statistical noise in the data where you can't actually tell if violent crime outside of murders has increased or not because the new counties show an increase in crime that have never been in the actual data set before. But the same counties that were in both the old setup and the new setup showed no increase at all. So it's tough to tell whether or not that's, uh, that's anything significant. So we'll give you a link to that story so you can read through it. The gist of it is, and a quote from the story, quote, Ultimately, both the Crime Victim Survey and the FBI Crime Report are in agreement that violent crime has fallen significantly since the 1990s. There is also little doubt that the national murder rate has risen about 20% since its lowest point in 2014. But any general claims of rising violent crime in America should be taken with a grain of salt. We simply cannot say for sure whether violent crime increased, decreased, or stayed the same last year. Also keep in mind that murder rate is going to go up even more next year because these mass shootings like the Mandalay Bay shooting and so on, uh, those all get factored in among the murder rate as well. So out of ProPublica, talking about that National Crime Victim Survey, uh, they've also noted that there's a huge disparity between the hate crimes that are reported in the victim survey and what is actually compiled by local jurisdictions that is then given to the FBI for the UCRs. Uh, some of the findings they have in their report, quote, local law enforcement agencies reported a total of 6,121 hate crimes in 2016 to the FBI. But estimates from the National Crime Victimization Survey conducted by the federal government pin the number of potential hate crimes at almost 250,000 a year. So how do you get that huge discrepancy? Well, it turns out, quote, in most states, local law enforcement agencies send their hate crime data to the state, which is then supposed to submit it to the FBI. But we found several instances in which this chain broke down. The Orlando Police Department, for example, told us it reported five hate crimes for 2015 to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, but the FBI data shows no hate crimes investigated by Orlando that year. Uh, also out of Alabama, Alabama has a hate crime statute, but it only applies to certain bias-related incidents that do not include sexual orientation, uh, even though the 1990 federal law requires the FBI to track sexual orientation-related hate crimes. 
uh, since there's no power to compel the local departments to gather if they just don't get that information. So that is out of ProPublica. Out of Reuters, there is a six-part series on the use of tasers, both on, uh, on the street and in jails and prisons. This current piece that came out this past week is about overuse in the jail and prison system. They have as an example the story of Martini Smith. It says, quote, Corporal Matthew Steese pointed his taser at Martini Smith's bare chest. Smith was 20 years old, pregnant, and stripped nearly naked, standing in a cell in the Franklin County Jail in Columbus, Ohio. She had been detained on charges of stabbing a boyfriend she had accused of beating her. Steese and a deputy had ordered her to disrobe, take off all jewelry, and don a prison gown. But she hadn't been able to obey one command, removing the silver stud from her tongue. Take their tongue ring out, Deputy Shonda Arnold said. Smith continued struggling to unscrew the ring, inserting fingers from both hands into her mouth, but no luck. Her fingers were numb, she protested. She'd been cuffed for six hours with her hands behind her back. I will tase you, Steve said. Smith responded that the ring was slippery and asked for a paper towel. The deputies refused and instead fired their taser. And this is all caught on video, by the way, which is why this report has come out. The video was posted on Twitter. Again, going back to the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. You'll hear that a lot today. Um, so basically, she falls to the ground, can't breathe, has been tased. Uh, bonus, ended up having a miscarriage five days later because of the bodily stress from being tased. Uh, Reuters identified 104 inmates who had died from taser use while they were behind bars. Out of that 104, only two of them were armed. Uh, a third of them were in handcuffs or other restraints when they were stunned, and more than two-thirds of the 70 cases where Reuters got full details of everything, uh, the inmate was already immobilized. He was on the ground or held by officers at the time they were tased. So we'll give you that link. You should check it out. Uh, out of a website called The Conversation, there's a study on parole violations and how they are basically the uh, driving the growth of incarceration. Uh, they did a study of 100,000 cases over a three-year period in, I think it was Michigan. Don't quote me on that. I, I don't have the state in my show notes, but I know there was a specific state they relied on. Uh, and what they found essentially was that if you're sentenced to prison as opposed to probation where you go home and you just got to deal with a probation officer, but if you actually do time in prison, that increased the probability of you serving additional time within three years of you being released by between 18 and 19%. So basically 19% of the time, if you spend some time in jail or prison, you're more likely to go back. Uh, so when they compared that with other folks who had just been given probation and looked at the different variances in the cases, uh, what they found was, quote, our results demonstrate that imprisonment for parole violations rather than convictions for new felonies accounts for a large majority of this effect. We found no evidence that imprisonment increased overall criminal behavior after release. So what you find is when you're on post-release supervision, you're treated more harshly by the justice system. And we have a lot of people who have already been incarcerated that we're just sending back just because we can, even though it's for minor offenses where normally they would be given a deferral or put on probation or something that doesn't put them back in prison. 
So I'll give you that story as well. Uh, in federal news, turns out the United States Coast Guard has been running secret drug prisons on their ships in the Pacific Ocean. They will hold alleged drug smugglers for weeks or months without an attorney or any other communication or court appearance, basically making the argument that an offshore uh, drug prison ship is similar to Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. So we'll give you that story in state by state news. And let me pause. I'm sorry I'm going very quickly. I'm trying to get through all of this. I'm on page four. We have 16 pages to go and we're already 20 minutes into the podcast. So play this at half speed if you need me to go slower. If I'm still talking too slow, pay me at one and a half speed if you want me to speed up. Uh, in state by state news out of Arizona in Mesa, Mesa Police Department cop Mitch Brailsford was found not guilty in the extrajudicial summary execution of Daniel Shaver. And this was the this was the big story of the past week because the body cam footage of Shaver's execution was released after the trial ended. Uh, essentially, Shaver worked in pest control. He helped the hotel deal with rats. He was off-duty with several of the janitorial staff in his office having a beer, uh, showed one of the women he was drinking with the pellet gun he used to shoot the rats. Someone apparently called 911 saying that he was pointing it at people in the parking lot. The police showed up, and Shaver is very clearly drunk. He is sobbing, begging for his life, tears streaming down his face. Uh, one of the officers keeps giving him different commands, like it's this really sick game of Simon Says, where they make him get on his knees, put his hands on his head, cross his legs, then try and get him to crawl forward. If he falls, he's got to fall on his face or whatever else. Uh, and essentially, at some point, as they're yelling at him different commands, Shaver reaches for his drawers because his pants are falling down trying to crawl forward as he's drunk. And uh, this Brailsford guy shoots him five times with an AR-15 where he had etched, quote, you're fucked on the side of the, uh, the grip. So somehow, for reasons I don't understand, the jury found Brailsford not guilty of murder and not guilty of manslaughter. So he will go completely free. Uh, Daniel Shaver was one of 1,165 people killed by police in 2016. And you'll be surprised to know he's actually white. They kill the white folks, too. So that's out of Arizona. In California, got a lot of stories out there. In Laguna Beach, the Laguna Beach Police Department has arrested Officer Rock Wagner. Uh, he's been put on paid vacation, oddly enough, but he's been arrested for elder abuse and fraud. Essentially, his sister and her boyfriend uh, were defrauding an elderly couple out of hundreds of thousands of dollars, the police sergeant said in that case. But of course, he's going to get paid vacation until this all gets uh, squared away. Out of Los Angeles, the LA Times has gotten its hands on the secret Brady list that we had mentioned in a prior podcast. Basically, this is 300-ish deputies that have something in their background where they can't be used as witnesses in court because their credibility, they're just not reliable witnesses. The sheriff wanted to turn this over to the DAs, but the police union filed a suit to block it, and a judge said no. Well, apparently someone has leaked this information to the Times, and they've taken a look at it, and they've got a lot of... Um, really questionable stuff here. One of them that was kind of the, the main focus was this guy, Deputy Jose Ovale, uh, where an inmate's shirt had gone missing and it had blood on it. So this genius picked out a, this is a quote from the story, quote, picked out a similar shirt, doused it with taco sauce 
and snapped a photograph, which was booked into evidence with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department law enforcement records show. So that was that guy. Uh, One deputy on the list endangered the lives of fellow officers and an undercover informant when he warned a suspected drug dealer's girlfriend that the dealer was being watched by police. Another pepper sprayed an elderly man in the face and then wrote a false report to justify arresting him. Another pulled over a stranger and got a blowjob from her while he was in his patrol car. Uh, The list also includes several deputies still with the department who were convicted of crimes, one for filing a false arrest report, another who was charged with domestic battery. In other cases, prosecutors sharply criticized the deputies' actions but declined to pursue criminal charges against them. This is just in Los Angeles. Uh, Also out of L.A., we've talked before about the scandal with the cadet program where cadets who were high school students were basically taking joyrides in police cars. Uh, One of the adults was having sex with a 15-year-old. That whole thing has been investigated thoroughly by the L.A. Times. And one thing they found is that basically this was going on for two months and no one noticed. Uh, From the story says, quote, if the group of young Los Angeles police cadets accused of stealing department vehicles had any fear of getting caught, they certainly didn't show it. For weeks, according to police documents, the teens drove to and from LAPD-related events and on joyrides as far away as Corona and Santa Clarita. Some of the cadets used the police cars to perform donuts behind an Inglewood store, and one drove a stolen LAPD vehicle to his job at a Ross Dress for Less store. There were other blatant actions. A high-ranking cadet, described as the ringleader of the group, asked someone to film him driving a cruiser, and they often drove with lights flashing and silent sirens blaring, in one instance, racing through South L.A. to Hawthorne to move one teen's personal vehicle before it was towed. Somehow they didn't notice this was going on for two whole months. So that was in L.A. out of San Francisco. There's a long read uh, series in The Undefeated on it's it's several parts to it, but it's essentially covering different police officers of color. And there's a piece on Sergeant Yolanda Williams, who was um, basically they talk about how she did well at her job. She scored ninth out of 145 applicants on a promotional exam, but she was skipped over for promotion anyway because she had pointed out that a lot of her colleagues were fucking racist, including sending her slurs via text message, calling her names and everything else. Well, she ended up testifying about institutional racism in the department uh, to a panel that had been put together by the mayor of San Francisco, and that ended up affecting her career as well. And then finally, there's it ends on a good note where essentially a new San Francisco police chief was put in place, and he promoted her to lieutenant. But it talks at length about the fuckery that goes on within the San Francisco Police Department. And it's interesting that this happens to police officers of color because, you know, blue lives matter, supposedly. I'm thinking about making it a fifth rule of Fisk, that when people say blue lives matter, they're not talking about the dark blue ones. We've talked about this a few times before. I think I've actually got another story somewhere in the next, like, dozen pages that it's the same type of scenario. Um, So that was one of the stories out of San Francisco. Also... ADA Benjamin Maines, who we've talked about in a prior podcast, who had been hiding evidence, Uh, he's been fired from the district attorney's office out there. This was the guy that hid DNA evidence from the public defenders in two cases, uh, at least one of which there was a case where a guy had been accused of uh, burglary, and they had DNA evidence showing that someone else did it, and ADA Maines hid that from the public defender's office. 
so that is also out of San Francisco in San Joaquin Valley. The San Joaquin County's chief forensic pathologist, Dr. Bennett Omalu, you might recognize his name because he's the guy from the uh, concussion movie. He's the one who found out about CTE with these NFL players. Uh, both him and his colleague, Dr. Susan Parson, resigned last week uh, because they have alleged that the sheriff, Steve Moore, has been trying to interfere with death investigations to protect officers. Uh, in his statement, Amalu said, quote, Sheriff Steve Moore has always made calculated attempts to control me as a physician and influence my professional judgment. The sheriff was using his political office as the coroner to protect police officers whenever someone died while in custody or during arrest. I had thought that this was initially an anomaly, but now, especially beginning in 2016, it has become routine practice. Uh, so that is out of San Joaquin Valley in San Leandro. Marco Becerra with the San Leandro Police Department has resigned after accusations that he performed unlawful sexual acts with a 17-year-old who was part of the Police Explorer program that Becerra advised. So he has been charged as well. Uh, in Silicon Valley, there is some good news out of California. CNBC has a profile on a nonprofit called The Last Mile, which teaches computer coding skills to inmates and then helps them find jobs at tech companies. So they basically follow around one of these interns who had been in prison for uh, a very long time for homicide, and now he's going to be a computer coder. Out of the District of Columbia, NPR has an extended set of coverage on Ron Brown College Preparatory High School, which is an all-boys, nearly all-black public school. Uh, it was covered in Code Switch. It was covered in several of the other NPR podcasts. Uh, it had been mentioned on NWAP, one of the other podcasts that I listened to. It's a very detailed segment. It's worth listening to in full. But there's one piece on it where there's a presentation to the students by some D.C. police officers and they're, it, it's hilarious to me because these are high school kids. And high school for me was a while ago. I'll stipulate that up front. But I can still somewhat recall a little bit of what it was like. And basically, these officers are talking to kids who have been unfairly targeted by police and trying to tell them that they have to get the officer's name and badge number so they can make a complaint. And the kids are looking at them incredulously like, this. You know, if an officer just slammed me down on a bench, how the fuck am I going to get his name and badge? Uh, and it's, it's funny because the officers are in disbelief that these kids aren't listening to them. And the kids are like, how stupid are you as adults that you think when we've been attacked by police, we're then going to try and stand up and get their name and badge number. It, it's, it's sad and funny at the same time. So I'll give you the link. You can listen to it. So that's out of the District of Columbia. In Florida, in Hillsborough County, there's a new lawsuit going on. It's going to cost taxpayers some money. Uh, filed by a John Curall who had been arrested for selling drugs to an undercover cop, claiming that he had been working as a bartender at the Risque Gentlemen's Club. Uh, Curell said, hey, that wasn't me. They didn't care. They locked him up anyway. They put him in jail. He was in jail for six days before he could get out. They also impounded his pickup truck. Well, it turns out that they had the wrong guy. He had never set foot in that particular strip club. He had never worked there. The only way they found him and had a warrant issued for his arrest is that a deputy did a search for John John as a nickname. And somehow going through Google and social media, John Curall had been identified as John John, and that was good enough for them. So taxpayers in Florida will be spending some money. 
in Georgia, we do have a little bit of accountability going on. You know, it, this is really, it's interesting. So like you have Brailsford being acquitted at an Arizona. You've got a conviction here in Georgia that I'm going to talk about. You also had some surprising news in South Carolina. Uh, it really is kind of a, a one step backward, two steps forward type deal this week, or I get two steps forward, one step back, but I kind of covered the backward part first. Um, so Nicole Carr, who is a reporter for WSB TV in Atlanta, uh, has a story on Trevor King, who is the Atlanta Police Department officer that beat the ever living shit out of a guy, supposedly for stealing a tomato from Walmart. Uh, basically, this guy is Tyrone Carnegie. And he was in Walmart, he bought a tomato, had the receipt in his pocket. King was in his Atlanta Police Department uniform working off duty and came up to him and, and basically really just stopped him and beat the shit out of him very quickly. Beating him with his baton, broke Carnegie's leg to the point that the bone was sticking out of the skin, uh, also caused a ruptured artery. And because he was eventually arrested, he was handcuffed at the bed, which made it hard for the doctor to actually work on getting him better. Uh, so essentially, all this is going on. And then after the beating, the officer pulls the receipt out of the guy's pocket to show that he actually did, in fact, buy this one tomato. Well, there was a trial in 2016 on this that ended in a mistrial because King essentially admitted in his testimony that he had faked the police report. And as a result of the mistrial and the WSB reporting on it, the federal government then caught wind of what was going on and indicted him federally. Uh, and then there was a federal trial this past week where the jury unanimously found him guilty. Uh, for use of unreasonable force and for falsifying a police report. So sentencing hasn't happened yet, but we now have at least one guilty verdict in a bona fide trial down in Georgia. Uh, in Savannah, there is good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Uh, police officer William Eng responded to a 911 call of an unresponsive baby. There was a 29-year-old uh, young girl that had just stopped breathing. Eng wasn't dispatched himself, but since he was nearby, he went to that particular kid's home, uh, took the child from their mother, and was doing chest compressions, and eventually the baby woke up and all is well. So that's out of Savannah, Georgia. Over in Indiana, in Indianapolis, uh, Indianapolis Police Department Officer Francisco Almos has been charged with obstruction and criminal trespass. This is a disgusting fucking story. Um, so an 18-year-old girl killed herself in 2015. We don't particularly know the circumstances. What we do know, well, I mean, we know how she died, but we don't know what prompted her to kill herself. Um, but she had been talking via text message with Officer Almos. Uh, she had been part of the youth career program that he was helping to oversee. They worked out together. They had done at least 15 ride-alongs together. You know, you and I both kind of have an idea of what that means, but none of that's actually stated in the article that they were actually fucking, but I think that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Well, she ended up sending him texts, and he went to her home with... It's, it's lengthy. There's a lengthy story on this, but the gist of it is he texted this girl repeatedly saying, you can't do this to me again, you can't do this to me, blah, blah, blah. Whatever the again means, I don't actually know. But she ended up taking a gun and shooting herself, while he is at the house trying to get to her before she killed herself, her dad shows up, goes in to check on her, discovers that she's dead, has the officer come up to her room where she's dead. I mean, her body is there. The officer asks the dad 
if he can borrow the girl's phone to make a phone call, which is fucking weird. And then in the process, goes through and deletes all the text messages they had back and forth. Uh, And on top of it, put a passcode on top of the phone to try and stop other police from getting to it. And essentially, that's how he got found out, because it was this particular family's practice that none of the phones had passcodes. You could just pick up a phone and use it. And because there was a passcode that prompted them to look further at the phone, they sent the phone off to a particular company to do a forensic analysis. And what they found is that there's a lot of text logs, Snapchat logs, and everything else that had not been, um, that was still recoverable showing text messages between this guy and the girl. So he's been indicted for obstruction of justice by deleting all this evidence and trespass for invading the phone, essentially. So we'll see what happens out there. But that's a a really fucked up situation. Uh, Out of Plainfield, Indiana, Plainfield Police Department, Carrie Weber. This is a snowflake fucking moment right here. She has been suspended because she told an officer he benefited from white male privilege, and that guy was offended. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, a video recording of a training session provided by Plainfield Police Department captured the exchange. My life has never been part of police violence, the officer said. Most of the people that I know have never been accused the police of violence, so I guess I don't get where the statistic comes from. He's referring to stats about how LGBT folks are more likely to experience police violence than the rest of the populace at large. At that time, Captain Kerry Weber interrupted, saying, because of your white male privilege, you wouldn't know. Weber's comment appeared to anger the officer and others, One of the instructors tried to calm them down and get the room back together when one of the officers said, Chief, are you going to let her get away with that? Seriously, I'm asking a legitimate question and I'm getting white privilege. Are you serious? I find that extremely offensive. I will leave. Uh, Days later, the officer filed a complaint saying, I was racially and sexistly slurred by Captain Carrie Weber while I was asking a question of the instructor in training. I am now firmly aware of the discriminatory belief she just verbally communicated. There is no place in the Plainfield Police Administration or supervision for someone who holds and espouses her discriminatory views. You can't really discriminate against white people or guys. Let's be real. All right. I'm a white male. I have no doubt I have white male privilege. I use it deliberately to help out my clients on a regular basis. I get certain consideration paid to me because I am a white guy than I wouldn't get if I were a black lawyer or if I were a female lawyer. This is all common sense. I know for sure police know that because they deal with this stuff on a daily basis. You carry yourself in a community differently when you're part of the majority. That's just how it works. So if you want to be a pansy little snowflake and write a damn complaint about it, you know, it's it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And now on top of it, the captain was suspended. It's bad enough that someone wanted to write a complaint about pointing out an obvious truism. The captain got suspended for saying it. That's crazy. Uh, So that's out of Indiana and Kansas and Kansas City. A federal judge has dismissed a man's drug indictment, citing misconduct by the prosecutor. So this is the, you might remember from, I think it was two podcasts ago, maybe three podcasts ago, we talked about uh, Lamont McIntyre, who was the guy that had spent 20-something years in jail for a crime he didn't commit, and ended up, the reason why he was convicted was a lot of different things, including police misconduct, prosecutor misconduct. Uh, In addition to prosecutor misconduct, the prosecutor was apparently also fucking the judge in the case. So all of this stuff is going on. Well, this same 
uh, United States attorney was prosecuting a Gregory Orozco on two drug charges. And as part of that, she intimidated a witness and then belatedly disclosed evidence that could have helped Orozco's case. So that type of misconduct normally doesn't have a whole lot of impact, but because of her history, the federal judge said, no, we're just going to dismiss this outright. Uh, In addition to screwing up that case, screwing up McIntyre's case, uh, the Kansas Supreme Court also cited this particular prosecutor's misconduct in a Wyandotte County trial that uh, it overturned a 2001 murder conviction uh, because the then-district attorney, Tara Moorhead, repeatedly misstated the law in her closing arguments to the jury. Uh, So that's out of Kansas in Kentucky, in Richmond. There's an op-ed in the Richmond Register by David Adams. I don't know who he is, but the reason why I'm mentioning it is that the op-ed is really strident. Like, dude is on point. Talking about the stupidity of the police rationale for why we criminalize marijuana. I'm going to give you three snippets from his editorial. He says, quote, Kentucky is already a marijuana state. We just have chosen the least effective way to manage that fact causing incalculable harm and missing practically all the benefits of embracing a natural advantage at our fingertips. As our nation quickly approaches three dozen states with at least some form of legal marijuana production, our Commonwealth wastes money chasing people it can't catch, growing a medical crop it mostly can't benefit from, serving a decades-old propaganda scheme it doesn't really take seriously." Spending limited available police resources, hunting marijuana plants, and imprisoning growers and consumers will never make a dent in anything except our economy. Attempting to avoid detection and prosecution inspires real criminal activity, creating potential for far more danger than a few plants. People caught in this web of official ineptitude then face being removed from the workforce for an extended period and then labeled a convict forever, further limiting their productivity. If we want to improve the fight against crime, ending the war on cannabis is a great place to start. Maybe we could even put that money back into police pensions in order to keep our protectors on their real job without the distraction of prosecuting medicine. There's a lot more from there, but it's a it's a very bold editorial, especially for places like Kentucky with their very strong law and order history. Uh, So I'm going to give you that link. You can read it. It's very good. Uh, In Louisiana, the United Kingdom's Guardian newspaper has a compilation of stories about jails and prisons ending their in-person visitation and replacing it with this app from uh, Securus. We've talked about it before. It's it's called Skype for the Jailed, essentially. So basically shitty Skype. Um, But the interesting part is... The calls are $39 an hour, so that breaks down to $12.99 for 20 minutes. That is a shitload of money. The jail gets 20% of that, so about $3 per call per inmate. Um, You think about how much money that is. That's a shitload of kickback money going to the jails. It's no fucking wonder that they're getting rid of in-person visitation. Um, so we'll give you that story. Again, we've talked about it before. Video visitation is a scam. It's something that jails are using to get rid of in-person visitation, even though the data shows that if you use it as a supplement, you have both video visitation and in-person visitation, you reduce recidivism over what you'd have normally. Uh, now they're just getting rid of the in-person stuff outright. Uh, also in Louisiana, there's a new audit into state police superintendent Mike Edmondson. They basically found this guy is a scam artist extraordinaire fleecing the taxpayers left and right. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, 
A new audit report into State Police Superintendent Mike Edmondson found he repeatedly used the job for personal gain, ordering troopers to chauffeur his wife around the state, tapping state resources to service his son's Jeep, relying on trustees to walk the family dog at the Department of Public Safety compound where the Edmondsons lived rent-free for years, uh, allowed friends to stay in New Orleans hotel rooms paid for by the city of New Orleans, reserved for state troopers providing security at Mardi Gras, ate free meals at the state police cafeteria, ordered inmates to deliver food to his residence, and improperly used the governor's mansion dry cleaning service to clean his uniforms, all while taking a stipend from the state for dry cleaning. On top of that, he also deleted text messages and lied to investigators to try and hide his wrongdoing. So Louisiana, man, I've said this before. When Louisiana does corruption, they do corruption. If you want to know how to do corruption right, you've got to go down there to learn from the masters. Uh, In Maryland, our fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was a documentary. The Baltimore Public Defender's Office is trying to get renewed attention on cases where people have been convicted of drug crimes involving this gun trace task force. Uh, This is the group that a lot of them have been indicted for planning evidence uh, from the story. Uh, says, quote, there are new allegations that the supervisor of the unit planted drugs on a suspect seven years ago. Federal authorities say then-detective Wayne Jenkins planted drugs on a suspect following a high-speed chase in 2010, and prosecutors released a man from federal prison who had served seven years of a 15-year sentence related to the arrest. Jenkins, charged along with seven other members of his unit, was already facing a number of allegations that he robbed citizens, participated in reselling seized drugs, drugs, falsified court paperwork, and earned fraudulent overtime. All of this is bad enough, but on top of it, the officer that found those planted drugs, that was Detective Sean Souter. He's the guy we mentioned who was killed the day before he was scheduled to testify in federal court against his fellow officers. Baltimore PD is all kinds of fucked. Uh, In Massachusetts, out of Amherst, More than 6,000 drug convictions are going to be tossed out after more misconduct by the state's crime lab. Uh, From the story, quote, the latest dismissals follow years of litigation over crimes committed by Sonia Farrick, a former chemist at the Amherst Drug Lab. Farrick was arrested in 2013 on charges of stealing from the evidence locker to feed her own addiction. Farrick's misconduct was compounded further by two former state prosecutors in the attorney general's office who withheld evidence regarding the scope of the chemist's crimes. We actually mentioned this in a podcast several episodes ago. Um, So last June, a Springfield judge ruled that the prosecutors committed a fraud upon the court. In early November, a judge ordered all Massachusetts DAs to review their cases for Farrick-related convictions and identify charges they were willing to dismiss. So that's where you get this 6,000 set of cases from. This is in addition to the more than 20,000 cases that were dismissed back in June because of misconduct by a different person within the state crime lab. And that's all in addition to even more dismissals relating to the DUI stuff that we mentioned a couple podcasts ago as well. So basically, if you're in Massachusetts, odds are pretty high that the people who are tasked with collecting and analyzing evidence are probably fucking it up. In Suffolk County, Massachusetts, a Superior Court judge has ruled this week that law enforcement agencies can't use the state's criminal records law to hide information about who gets arrested. So essentially, 
uh, all of your stuff, and this is true in most states, when you're arrested, all of your stuff is typically in public record. Your mugshot, your name, where you live, what you're charged with, all of that stuff is released to the public because theoretically there's a public interest in it and concern that, you know, theoretically you're a threat to the community. Well, what was happening in Massachusetts is that if you were a police officer who had been arrested or a politician, uh, basically the police were refusing to release that public info, saying that this law prohibits that. Well, a judge said no, that was wrong. Uh, and this is all relating to a 2015 lawsuit that had been filed by the Boston Globe and several others against the Boston Police Department and other police departments. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, the paper filed the suit in 2015 against several state agencies after they withheld photos and reports of more than a half dozen law enforcement officers who were charged with driving under the influence, as well as a report about a judge who was accused of stealing a watch at Logan International Airport. Boston police would not provide the names of officers who had been arrested, even though detailed information about ordinary residents who were arrested was posted on the department's website. So that's out of Massachusetts in Michigan and Royal Oak. Anthony Sevy went to pay a parking ticket that was for $10. He wanted to use his credit card, but was told there would be a $1.75 surcharge. So he was pissed. He came back with $10 worth of pennies and the little penny rolls. Well, the clerks refused to accept the pennies. The police who were there asked Sevy to leave. Uh, and as he's walking out, one of the officers grabs him from behind, chokes him out, puts him on the ground, uh, and chokes him to the point that Sevy passes out and shits his pants in the process. The officer claimed that Sevy was resisting arrest, but you will be shocked, shocked to know that there was security camera footage that showed that this was a lie. The officer just randomly grabbed him for sport because he could. Because, first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. In Minnesota, in St. Anthony, the St. Anthony City Council has approved a settlement with Diamond Reynolds. She is the girlfriend of Philando Castile. Uh, she is going to be paid $800,000 for false arrest for the time where she was trapped in the car. Uh, this is in addition to the $3 million that had been paid to the family of Philando for his wrongful death. And in addition to the $48,500 paid to Geronimo Yanez, the police officer that killed him without cause. Now, that's a huge sum of money for taxpayers to be shelling out because a cop couldn't handle his job and wasn't willing to treat Philando and his girlfriend and their baby girl in the back seat as actual human beings, decided to shoot him dead for sport because he could. Uh, but then on top of that, a Tom McBroom Sr., who's on the town council in one of the cities nearby and is also a sheriff's deputy, uh, decided that he was going to go ahead and send out a tweet that the settlement money, quote, will be gone in six months on crack cocaine because he's a fucking asshole. Well, then it gets better. McGroom deleted the tweet when others saw it. The media called him. And when City Pages called him for an interview, he denied he was either a city councilman or a sheriff's deputy, telling them, quote, I'm a general contractor, wrong person, sorry. He then called them back because he had lied and wanted to retract his lie, but then lied again, saying, quote, nowhere did I say they would spend all that money on crack. I said they would spend it in six months. At no point did I say on crack cocaine, even though screenshots are forever. And of course, people have screenshots of him being an asshole. So when we talk about systemic racism, we've mentioned it before. This is the type of stuff they're talking about. You have a sheriff's deputy talking about preconceived notions, essentially, that he thinks that this woman's a crack cocaine addict because she's black. 
and then makes that publicly known to people, what has been probably privately known among the department for a while, and he's tasked with enforcing the law and dealing with people of color in his particular jurisdiction. So Tom McBroom, fuck you. Uh, That's out of Minnesota, in Missouri, out of St. Louis, 12-year-old, God, Jesus Christ, 12-year-old Tyrese Leggett, I'm going to say this again, 12 years old, uh, had his arm snapped in two different places by a school resource officer at Hoach Middle School. And the story, the story portrays this kid as like a super beast. You know, we see this a lot with black kids in particular, especially black boys. Uh, They say, I'm just going to read you quotes from the story. Quote, the incident began on Wednesday at the middle school when a classmate was talking to Tyrese and messing with him, his mother said. The classmate's comments made her son upset. This is from the police chief next. Tyrese was trying to leave the classroom, but his teacher blocked him from leaving because she was afraid he would assault other students. Chief Jimenez said the boy had picked up the teacher, thrown her into a metal door frame. The impact caused the teacher to hit the back of her head, and she had to go to an urgent care clinic. An assistant principal called the school resource officer to deal with Tyrese, who had left the school building. The officer asked the student multiple times to come inside, but Tyrese was still about to leave the school grounds. The student shoved the officer, who almost fell backwards. The officer then pulled the student into an arm restraint, but because the student was kicking and flailing, he hurt his arm during the restraint. They want you to believe that a 12-year-old picked up a teacher, threw her into a door, pushed a police officer to the point that he almost fell, and then broke his own arm in two different places as he was, quote, in an arm restraint. Bullshit. I've dealt with 12-year-olds. I could knock down a 12-year-old with my bare hand just by fucking pushing him. All right? I've dealt with a lot of 12-year-olds because I work with local uh, boys and girls clubs around here, and even the most athletic, well-built ones aren't a threat to me as a six-foot, 230-something-pound guy. So this is all crap. Uh, So that's out of Kentucky. In Nevada, out of Las Vegas, there was a year-long study of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department that shows wearing body cams reduced use of force incidents. They essentially gave cams to 200 officers in one group. They had a separate 200-officer control group and then monitored them from September 2014 through October 2015. What they found was that among those wearing cameras, the study showed a 37% reduction in the number of officers involved in at least one use-of-force incident and a 30% reduction in the number of officers with at least one complaint filed against them. So this is interesting because this actually is an opposite result from the study of D.C. police officers on the use of body cams. That was also another year-long study. Uh, So it's interesting to see how this all shakes out. I'll give you a link to that story. You can check it out yourself. In New Jersey, out of Newark, ex-Newark police officer Dino Delia has been sentenced for identity theft. Uh, Basically, there is a police database where all of your information happens to flow into it, and it had been breached by Delia and his partner. From the story, it says, quote, police discovered the breach in 2014, at which time authorities learned that Delia's partner, Captain Anthony Buono of Millstone, New Jersey, accessed the private database about 900 times to glean information for Delia's illicit sales. So basically, this guy would get the information. Delia would then sell it to people for $100 a piece. Uh, Delia pleaded guilty in connection with the scheme. 
Uh, Chief Assistant Prosecutor Walter Durkin pointed out that Delia was already serving a term under New Jersey's pretrial intervention program for a separate crime of dishonesty as he was being sentenced, trying to argue this guy should get jail time. Uh, Instead, he was given two years of probation and no jail time at all. You'll be shocked to learn that Dean Odelia is white. Out of Seagirt, New Jersey, some festive news. Uh, the Seagirt Police Department was investigating Christmas lights being torn down from the town's Christmas tree. They weren't sure why. Put up some security cameras and found the culprit. It was a squirrel. In New Mexico, out of Albuquerque, there's a new lawsuit against the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department filed by Sharice Crawford, a 38-year-old black female who works with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, from the story, quote, Crawford was first stopped in April on suspicion of driving a stolen car, but was actually driving a rental provided by her agency. Later that month, the sheriff's department pulled her over for tailgating. When he examined Crawford's license, the deputy uh, said he recognized her name and asked her if she had been pulled over the week before. Days later, the same officer pulled her over again for driving too slow. Uh, During none of these stops did she actually receive a warning or a citation. They were just pulling her over all of these times because they could. So again, I'm seriously thinking about it. I will probably do it. We will have the fifth rule of Fisk that when they say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. Out of New York, we got a lot of New York stories. New York is actually one, two, three, four pages here. Uh, So the 81st Precinct tweeted out a picture of a pair of officers with some artfully arranged weed plants, uh, essentially saying, good job taking down this marijuana grow in Bed-Stuy. And, you know, it's, it's typical police stuff, nothing out of the ordinary there. But what is interesting is that 81st Precinct has a pretty colorful history. Uh, an officer recorded undercover daily stuff. They don't say for how long, but essentially he racked up hundreds of hours of audio just walking around dealing with people. And what they found was that basically the New York Police Department is just as fucked up as and dysfunctional as you've come to expect from these kinds of stories. From the story says, quote, they revealed that precinct bosses, those are the precinct heads, uh, threaten street cops if they don't make their quotas of arrests and stop and frisks, but also tell them not to make certain robbery reports in order to manipulate crime statistics. The tapes also refer to command officers calling crime victims directly to intimidate them about their complaints. So that was all from these audio files. And then in addition, there's a separate investigation into the 81st Precinct for manipulating crime reports, uh, separate and apart from the tapes, confirming that they were, in fact, manipulating crime reports. So it's interesting. I see this tweet from a precinct that's got a very checkered history of fucking things up. Uh, Also, out of the NYPD, Officer Reynaldo Lopez has been federally indicted. Uh, Lopez worked with the department's transit bureau. He was busted delivering what he thought were three kilos of heroin. Uh, Turns out, in addition to the drug dealing, the reason why he came up on their radar is because he had been involved in a credit card theft ring. Basically, he would work to get your personal information from assorted police databases, give that to another guy who would set up a fake credit card, then use the fake credit cards to buy electronics, movie tickets, clothes, and gift cards. So this guy's 26 and is going to end up in prison for a while. Uh, The New York Fire Department, the former fire commissioner's son, he'd been an EMT and ended up resigning in disgrace because he had had several rants on Twitter. Uh, Joseph Cassano is his name. He is 28, 
And this is the quote from the story. It says, quote, quit his former FDNY Fire Department in New York job as an emergency medical technician after the Post exposed his barrage of hateful tweets about blacks, Jews, and the poor people he was summoned to serve. MLK could go kick rocks for all I care, but thanks for the time and a half today, Cassano remarked on his social media account regarding the Martin Luther King holiday. He referred to blacks by the derogatory term schwoogs, I've never heard of that in my life, uh, and tweeted, quote, I like Jews about as much as Hitler. Seriously, what the fuck is a schwoog? Who comes up with that? Like, I'm in the South. I thought I've heard pre every conceivable epithet for black people that you could come up with at some point. A schwoog? Do you know what a schwoog is? I have no idea. It, that's fucking weird. I mean, it sounds like something you'd find in like a uh, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or Dungeons and Dragons or something. I, I've never heard of that. It's fucking strange. Anyhow, so this guy resigned as an EMT because he's a racist and a bigot. Well, then he got hired back. And from the story continues, quote, even after getting a second chance, Cassano didn't stay out of trouble. He and partner Michael Gala, the son of the FDNY's then personnel chief, were briefly restricted from duty after leaving an injured black child at a scene and instead transporting an injured adult to the hospital before another ambulance arrived. Total violation of protocol. So now he's quit as an EMT because he's getting a promotion to become a New York firefighter. Again, go back to the discussion on systemic racism. This guy has now got a documented pattern of being a racist asshole and is going to be given power and a paycheck paid for by taxpayers and given authority over other people's lives. Uh, the New York Times has an editorial on prison guards talking about the contract with the state prison guards union that is up for negotiation. I'm going to give you a link for that. The reason why they are writing about it is because out of Fishkill, New York, two prison guards have been convicted in a federal trial. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Kathy Scott and George Santiago Jr. have both been convicted following a trial where there was a unanimous verdict. Uh, essentially, from the evidence, says, quote, Scott and Santiago assaulted Moore in violation of his rights under the United States Constitution by repeatedly punching and kicking him in the head and body as he lay prone on the floor. Uh, essentially, at some point, the inmate said something along the lines of, I'm a monster or something like that. An officer grabbed him, another officer put him on the ground, and Santiago just started beating the shit out of him, mocking him, saying, who's a monster now? Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice release continues, quote, Scott, who was then a sergeant and the supervising officer on the scene, was present for the entire beating and was required to stop the excessive force of her subordinates. Instead of taking action to stop the unlawful violence, Scott encouraged it, ordering an officer to hold Moore down on the floor while other officers continued to kick and punch him. During the beating, Moore repeatedly cried out in pain and begged Scott and the other officers to stop hurting him. Now, this next part is where it gets surreal. You have to give people credit for ingenuity when they fuck up royally. Uh, immediately after the beating, Santiago and other officers, led by Scott, engaged in an elaborate cover-up of the crime they had committed. They made up a false cover story that Moore had attacked one of the officers and that another officer had to strike Moore once in the head. To make this lie believable, the officers claimed that Moore had injured the officer's back by pushing the officer backward onto a table. Because nothing of the sort had occurred, they created a phony injury. Specifically, Santiago hit one of the officers repeatedly on the back with a baton, and Scott photographed the fake injury. 
Scott then prepared a false use of force report of the incident, incorporating the photos and false statements from herself and other officers, and submitted the report to her superiors. Scott and Santiago also repeatedly pressured other officers to lie to investigators about what had occurred. Turns out Moore was very severely injured. Uh, They have, quote, he suffered multiple facial fractures, five broken ribs, a collapsed lung, among other injuries. According to the medical evidence, Moore received at least four forceful blows to the face and torso, including one crushing strike to the right eye that was consistent with a kick from a boot. So that's out of Fishkill, New York. In Rensselaer County, elected District Attorney Joel Abelove has been indicted over his handling of a grand jury investigation into the fatal police shooting of an unarmed motorist. Uh, so basically, New York has this executive order that Governor Cuomo put in place where whenever there's a police shooting, they appoint an attorney general to look into it. It's a good policy. I've recommended we have it for North Carolina. Uh, but essentially, in this particular case, the DA, uh, quote, quickly and surreptitiously presented the case to a grand jury. Uh, regarding this particular officer as a way of trying to get it handled before the AG's office could get involved. But then the crazy part is, quote, the district attorney also took the extraordinary step of conferring immunity upon the sergeant before the grand jury voted on whether or not to indict, effectively protecting the sergeant from any potential future prosecution in the killing. Finally, in October, D.A. Abelove lied about another immunity case in testimony to a separate grand jury, according to the indictment. So we'll see what happens with this guy. Essentially, he's crooked as shit. Uh, In Suffolk County, New York, the D.A.'s office paid out bonuses of $3.25 million over the course of five years. And they did this out of the civil asset forfeiture proceeds because that way they could do it without having to get approval from the legislature. Uh, From the story, quote, bonus recipients included Deputy Chief Homicide Prosecutor Robert Bianca Vila, who received a total of $108,886 between 2012 and 2017, and Division Chief Edward Heilig, and, get this, top public corruption prosecutor Christopher McPartland, who each received $73,000. These guys are crooked as shit. Uh, In North Carolina, there's an analysis by John Sanders, who's with the John Locke Foundation. It's one of our conservative think tanks. Uh, But he details how North Carolina's licensing laws make it harder for people with criminal records to find a job. Uh, So there's this new report. It's the Fair Chance Licensing Reform Report from the National Employment Law Project. And Sanders goes through this. And what you find is that there are 641 separate disqualifications in North Carolina's occupational licensing laws for having a conviction on your record. That makes us the 11th most in terms of disqualifications in the entire country and second in the southeast. Uh, Out of Dunn, North Carolina, a new dash cam footage has been released from a 2012 traffic stop showing police arresting Seneca Jackson. Uh, Jackson tries to run. He's caught. They bring him back within view of the dash cam, handcuff him, put him on the ground, and then just randomly start kicking the shit out of him anyway because they can. Uh, So that's out of Dunn, North Carolina. Out of Longview, North Carolina, uh, Rebecca Price was arrested for resisting a public officer because she was taking pictures on her phone on her property of a guy that a police officer was arresting. That guy had damaged her fence. The officer told her to stop. She said no because she has a right under the First Amendment to record him. Uh, So the officer convinced a magistrate to issue an arrest warrant. Uh, The charge against Price was dropped after the district attorney learned about what had happened. He wrote on the dismissal that the conduct was not a crime. 
The Longview police chief, Michael Winters, refused to talk on camera with the media, uh, but on the phone, he acknowledged that Price's behavior was not criminal. Out of Mecklenburg County, that's Charlotte, our biggest city in the state, and things that I didn't think could actually happen, but they actually do, uh, hackers somehow hacked the uh, county servers and encrypted them, froze them, and demanded a ransom for access to them. Uh, They managed to compromise 48 of the county's 500 servers, uh, alerted the officials that all of their stuff had been encrypted, and demanded two bitcoins as a ransom. And instead of paying the hackers what the county is going to do is basically use backup data to rebuild all the server stuff from scratch. Now, the part I don't get, we have all of these computers. We have all of these crimes. How is it no one has been able to compromise Sally Mae? I will find a way to pay a Bitcoin to a hacker if you can get into Sally Mae servers and make my student loans go away. I will make it work. Uh, So that's out of Mecklenburg. In Tryon, North Carolina, again, don't let it be said, I don't report good news. Uh, A stray cat named Squeaks showed up at the police department, started hanging around. Uh, The police department took pictures and tried to find its owner by posting them on Facebook. Uh, That part hasn't worked, but of course the pictures went viral. So what they did is they've added the cat to the staff and have pictures of it, you know, pretending to type reports and pretending to take 911 calls and everything else. And it's pretty cute. Uh, Out of Ohio, in Riverside, an officer somehow managed to tase his own partner while they were arresting a man during a traffic stop. The partner fell, hit his head on the ground, and had to be transported to the hospital. And, of course, this is all caught on body cam. Out of Oklahoma, in Ada, the Center for Investigative Reporting has another expose out. We've talked about them before. Uh, They had a story back over the summer where there was a basically a Christian group that judges were sending people to for drug rehab. And what it was actually doing was them working in a chicken farm, essentially, for no pay. Uh, well, it turns out they've got another one that they're talking about. And here's from the story. It says, quote, Retired Oklahoma Judge Thomas Landreth is hailed as a hero of criminal justice reform. He started the first rural drug court in the nation and has reaped awards for sending defendants to treatment rather than prison. Most judges in the state model their drug courts after his. But Landreth also is involved in a more sinister byproduct of criminal justice reform. Nearly a decade ago, Landreth started his own rehab work camp, where defendants must work full-time for free at a local Coca-Cola bottling plant and other companies under threat of prison if they don't comply. They are required to say they're unemployed and turn over their food stamps to the program, which state regulators say is fraud. And on their days off, some worked for free, mowing Landris' lawn and doing yard work around his property. So it's a lengthy story on Southern Oklahoma Addiction Recovery, or SOAR. Uh, it turns out Landreth is still the drug court judge for Pontotoc County, so he's still sending people there. And he's on the SOAR board of directors, so he's getting benefits from it as well. Uh, as they, again, mowed his lawn and some other things. That was Ada out of Oklahoma City. Uh, Killer cop Keith Sweeney has been charged with murder and the killing of a suicidal man. Uh, There was a 911 call during the early hours of November 15th where a Dustin Pigeon told the dispatcher he wanted to kill himself, but he didn't specify how. Officers rushed to a subdivision near southwest Oklahoma City where they found the 29-year-old in a courtyard with a bottle of charcoal lighter fluid in one hand and a Bic lighter in the other. Uh, Two of the officers started using de-escalation tactics that they're supposed to use. They tried to talk him down, tried to get him to drop the bottle and raise his hands. 
Well, as they're in the process of talking this guy down, Sweetie comes in like a fucking big dick cowboy and starts yelling at him, I will fucking shoot you, get on the ground, screaming at him, etc., etc. Eventually, one of the officers fires a beanbag round at Pigeon. They're not lethal. They do leave a bruise, but the idea is to incapacitate you. Uh, so uh, less than a second later, Sweetie just says, fuck it, takes his service weapon and shoots Pigeon five times, and Pigeon died at the scene. Uh, so that guy's being charged with murder. We'll see how that pans out. Also out of Oklahoma City, uh, 32-year-old Amanda Freeman was an inmate at the Oklahoma County Jail. Uh, she was having a seizure, and rather than get her medical help, a jail nurse instead attempted to perform an exorcism. Uh, yes, where you cast out demons. Uh, so Freeman died the next day. So we'll give you that story as well. In Oregon, out of Beaverton, the State Board of Examiners for Engineering and Land Surveying has admitted that it fucked up. Uh, a guy named, what's his first name? I don't have it on here. Well, his last name is Jarlstrom. Uh, landed in the board's crosshairs in 2014. This is an excerpt from Reason Magazine. Uh, after his wife received a traffic ticket, a trained electronics engineer, Jalstrom had used his knowledge to critique the timing of the red light camera that snagged his wife's car. Looking for feedback, Jalstrom sent a letter to the board in 2014 asking for the opportunity to present his research on how two short yellow lights were making money for the state by putting the public safety at risk. I would like to present these facts for your review and comment, he wrote. Instead of inviting him to present his ideas, the board threatened him. Citing laws that make it illegal to practice engineering without a license, the board told Jarlstrom that even calling himself an electronics engineer and using the phrase, I am an engineer, in his letter were enough to create violations. They then slapped him with a $500 fine. Uh, well, this week, the state of Oregon conceded in a lawsuit that he filed that they overstepped their authority. Uh, quote, we have admitted to violating Mr. Jarlstrom's rights, Senior Assistant Attorney General Christina L. Betty Walters said in court Monday. So basically, he's going to get his $500 back, and the suit itself is still pending because it was a class action for all others similarly situated. So we'll see how that turns out. Uh, in Pennsylvania, out of Williamsport, <laughs> God, this is government stupidity of a high order, uh, probation officer Luke Ellison was chasing an absconder, a guy who was jumping uh, bond, trying to escape, damaged his pants in the process, then decided because it happened on the job, he would file a reimbursement request because his pants were 60 bucks, not cheap. Well, the county controller, Krista Rogers, has released a report saying that she has paid her solicitor, Mary Kilgis, $4,285 to fight a court order requiring that Ellison be reimbursed. So they've spent $4,300 to fight a $60 reimbursement. That is government for you. Uh, out of South Carolina, the other piece of good news, accountability, uh, killer cop Michael Slager. He's the guy who shot Walter Scott in the back and then planted his taser next to Scott's dead body and then lied about what happened, was sentenced to 20 years by a federal judge. Now, I got to admit, I was wrong. You might remember if you're one of our longtime listeners, it was in our second episode all the way back in May that I devoted an entire Law 140 to federal pleas and talked about Slager's plea agreement. And I said on the record that at max, he'd only get 18 months. And I put that on Twitter and I said, flag this tweet if I was wrong. I was wrong. 
The judge has given him 240 months. Now, the sentence is still subject to an appeal. So even though Slager has pled guilty, that's beyond dispute. The sentence itself can still be appealed. So the Fourth Circuit could theoretically overturn it. Of course, your Papaya Potus could give him a pardon as well. Uh, but for right now, this is what accountability looks like. Guys going away for 20 years for executing someone who didn't have a weapon and then lying about it. Out of Texas, State District Judge Elizabeth Coker who presided over Trinity, Polk, and San Jacinto counties. Uh, She's filed to run for the Polk County District Attorney's Office. The reason why she no longer presides over those counties is because she was accused of unethical bias during court proceedings because she sent as many as 40 different text messages from the bench to prosecutors in the middle of their cases, giving them tips, tampered with witnesses, and in one case, slipped into the jury room to tell those deliberating how to vote. Like, this is flagrant violations of judicial canons right here. Um, so she ended up, she didn't admit guilt, and she resigned before the Judicial Standards Commission for that state issued any findings of misconduct. Uh, well, she's now filed to become a district attorney because apparently if you don't have ethics as a judge, the people should trust you to be a DA. I, I don't really understand that. Uh, you will be interested to note that both judges and the elected DAs make $146,000 a year. Both of them make the same salary. My guess is she's running for office because she needs the money, not because she's actually competent at doing it. Out of Harris County, uh, this is the capital of capital punishment. They're good for executing people in a fairly uh, steady clip. Turns out this is going to be the first year in a while that they haven't executed anybody. There were three executions that were scheduled. Two of them were blocked by the Supreme Court, and a third was delayed. So we'll give you that link. Uh, out of Perlin, Texas, this is fucking stupid. Uh, six-year-old Muhammad Suleiman has Down syndrome, intellectual difficulties, and doesn't speak. Now, that's bad enough, you know, if you're a parent trying to raise a kid with those kinds of challenges. That's, that's tough, you know? Well, if that wasn't hard enough... At school, the kid's regular teacher was taking a day off, and they had a sub. Well, the substitute called the police and CPS, claiming that this mute six-year-old with Down syndrome was a terrorist, uh, claiming that he said the word Allah and boom. Now, never mind the kid doesn't speak. Let's assume for the sake of argument he did speak. Saying Allah and boom is not a sign of you being a terrorist when you're six fucking years old and have Down syndrome on top of it. This is just stupid. Uh, the teacher's accusation against the special needs child prompted a police investigation and an investigation by Child Protective Services, which is still pending. Uh, out of Virginia... In Charlottesville, there was a report done on the protest over the summer with the Nazis where they killed people. Uh, an independent review of Charlottesville's handling of the white nationalist rally in August found that law enforcement and city officials made several significant mistakes resulting in violence and distrust. Uh, essentially, they go through bit by bit all the stuff they screwed up on. There's one particular case where an officer felt like she was at risk because there were so many angry Nazis around her that she needed backup. Rather than giving her backup, they had her leave that particular area and never sent anyone back over there. That happened to be one of the intersections where the crazy Nazi drove his car to run people over. 
the there's a 220 page report with a detailed record of the chaos and conflict that unspooled in the Virginia college town. It is unsparing in identifying the errors authorities made that day and in the preceding months. This is all a quote from the story, by the way. And what they find is that the city failed to protect either free expression or public safety. You couldn't do either one. Quote, this represents a failure of one of government's core functions, the protection of fundamental rights. Law enforcement also failed to maintain order and protect citizens from harm, injury, or death. Charlottesville preserved neither of those principles on August 12th, which has led to deep distrust of government within this community. No shit. Uh, out of Fairfax County, a Bijan Gaysar, who's a 25-year-old Iranian-American and an accountant, uh, was shot and killed by the U.S. Park Police after he was suspected in a hit and run. He was unarmed. And the really freaky detail about this is that he was shot three times in the head. So being shot three times is not unusual. Being shot in the head is not unusual. Being shot three times in the head is. I don't know if any of you are active shooters, but shooting someone in the head is difficult, uh, much less doing it three times because the head is a relatively small target compared to the rest of your body. So that's out of Fairfax County. I'm not sure what's going on there, but that just seems off. Uh, in Norfolk, the, uh, the black mom we mentioned in a prior podcast who had been charged with felony wiretapping because her daughter was being bullied and the mom put a tape recorder in the kid's book bag. The charges against her had been dismissed. Out of Wyoming and Laramie County, a Phil Parhamovich, he lives in Wisconsin. He's in, from Madison. And he had saved up $91,800 to buy a music studio. And he was going down to Wyoming for a concert, didn't want to leave the money at home because maintenance was supposed to be coming by. So he took the money, put it behind one of the stereo speakers in the car so that he wouldn't lose it. And you couldn't just get to it without putting some effort into it. Uh, well, Wyoming State Police pulled him over for a $25 seatbelt violation. They found that $91,800, and they took it as part of civil asset forfeiture. When he tried to get it back, they told him to go fuck himself. He didn't get it back until after news reports came out about what was going on, created an uproar, and supposedly, as of a couple days after Vox did this story, uh, police are claiming that he's going to get his funds back. Uh, so that is the state-by-state -state news in America. Every now and then we do cover occasional stories in other countries. Out of the United Kingdom in London, uh, five metropolitan police officers who were involved in the arrest, restraint, and detention of the musician Sean Rigg are not going to face charges. His death happened almost 10 years ago now. Uh, Rigg, who was 40, had paranoid schizophrenia and was living in a hostel. Police were called after he allegedly smashed up a gazebo and made karate moves, which staff believed to be threatening. The Independent Police Complaints Commission, the IPCC, uh, referred five officers to the CPS, that is the Crown Prosecution Service, in March 2016 for a charging decision after an inquest into Riggs's death. And essentially, the CPS has said, nope, we're not going to prosecute. Marsha Rigg, Sean's sister, says, quote, the CPS seems to apply an impossibly high evidential test when deciding whether to prosecute police officers, setting the bar so high that one cannot reach it. Uh, Deborah Coles, who is the director of an organization that supports relatives at coroner's courts, said, quote, for the family of Sean Rigg, the decision is bitter and painful. It stands at odds with the inquest evidence and findings Excessive use of force against black people and those with mental ill health continues because of failing systems of investigation, oversight, and accountability. 
Preventable police deaths go criminally unchallenged, and police officers continue to be shielded from justice. Sounds like we inherited a couple other things from the British, aside from our common law system of government. So folks, that is all of the criminal justice news from the past week and a half. Uh, We are not going to have a Law 140 because I can't really do one in seven minutes to keep this under an hour and a half show. We will have one next week on attorney-client privilege, as well as your typical political and criminal justice news, as you come to expect. Uh, As always, if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or write us a written review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Please feel free to continue sending me stories as you see them, because that's how we piece all of this stuff together. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.